0: This is for professional and institutional clients only.
1: In the end, it's about the right exit for the right business at the right time. When it comes to exit them, make sure you exit them well. And that means really thinking about it, really taking the time to position those businesses for the best possible exit, to make sure they are going to be sustainable enterprises for the next owners.
0: Welcome to the IGNIO Infrastructure Partners podcast, Keeping It Real Assets. In this series, you will hear from the IGNIO Investment Team in conversation with the leaders of our global infrastructure businesses. We will shine a light on how they operate and their approach to the challenges of an ever-changing world. We hope that you enjoy listening. Welcome to this episode of Keeping It Real Assets. Today, we will discuss value creation and the sale or divestment of infrastructure assets over time. I'm pleased to welcome Marcus Ayer, partner and head of IGNIO Infrastructure Partners in Europe. Marcus, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Nice to be here.
0: Could you give us a little bit on your background?
1: Sure. Well, I'm the longest serving member of the IGNIO Infrastructure Partners European team. I've been with the business almost 17 years now. So right the way through our journey of investment in infrastructure in Europe, before my time with Ignia, before becoming an infrastructure investor, I spent a decade as an investment banker in and around the infrastructure space. We didn't really call it infrastructure back then, but I was very much focused on transport logistics, energy and utilities, heavy industrials. So you could say I've terrifyingly got over a quarter of a century of experience in and around the infrastructure space.
0: We often talk about the principle of long-term investment that infrastructure requires. Noting that IGNIO is indeed a long-term buy and hold investor, could you tell us a little bit more about the reason why IGNIO has exited a number of its portfolio businesses over the last few years, including some of those that we've discussed in other podcast episodes?
1: I think we've always described ourselves as a long-term investor with a buy and hold mentality having a buy-and-hold strategy, a buy-and-hold mentality doesn't mean you don't sell businesses when it's appropriate to do so. And certainly there's been quite an active period. Over the last three years, we've announced eight separate divestments from our European portfolio. So it's been a very busy time for us in terms of divestments. But there's really three reasons that we would ever look to divest any of our portfolio businesses. The first and most important of those is because our investors tell us to. Ultimately, we work for our investors and it is their capital that we're putting at work and it is them who ultimately own those businesses. We in Europe have set up what's quite an innovative fund structure for our dedicated European funds in that they're all 15-year funds, but on the 10th anniversary of those funds, we have a strategic vote where investors get to decide should we leave those as 15-year funds or should we extend them to 20-year funds? And again, if we choose, if our investors choose to extend those funds to 20 years, there'll be another strategic vote in year 15 to decide if it should say is a 20 or 25-year fund. So the ability to perpetually extend in five-year blocks.
0: So truly long-term.
1: Long-term. Potential. If that's what the investors look for. Yep. And interestingly, for our first dedicated European Infrastructure Fund, which was a 2009 vintage fund. We went through that exercise in 2019. So that fund will mature later this year. We've been able to do an orderly exit of a number of the assets in that portfolio. So we are well on the route to that fund being fully divested later in 2024. The two other reasons are Either there's a market dislocation and really we have a fiduciary responsibility to our investors. If someone approaches us and makes an offer for a business that is substantially higher than the fundamental value we believe that business has, we have a fiduciary obligation to our investors to take that approach seriously and to explore if that is a real offer and if that is a real offer to potentially take that enhanced value, that uplifted value for the benefit of our investors. And we do have some examples within the portfolio where we have received approaches and taken those seriously and entered into bilateral transactions. So for example, Karuna, which was our Finnish electricity distribution business, that was exactly one of those where we were approached by an investor to acquire our stake and we decided that it was in the best interest of investors to realize that asset because it was an attractive price at a time we were thinking about exiting the business. The next reason why we would potentially look to sell is to do with underperforming assets. When an asset's underperforming in its investment case, that is causing us to believe that that fundamental investment case will not be achieved. Sometimes it is better to cut your losses and look to exit that business in the short term, rather than persevere with the business and persevere without underperformance.
0: And just on that, I guess that doesn't mean per se that there is something wrong with that business. It just means for the reason you acquired it and you owned it, that you believe that path under your ownership has come to an end. Correct.
1: I mean, I'll give you a, a really good example is we owned a business called Reganoso, which was an LNG regasification facility in Ferrol and Galicia in Spain. That was a business that was slightly frustrating on the way in and that we were trying to acquire a nearly 50% stake in the business, but we were partially preempted by other shareholders on the way in. And so we ended up with only a 15% and 5% stake. Now, we continued with the transaction because we believed that over time we'd be able to accrete that stake and grow it. While it was a very good business and performed in line with its investment case financially, it was a very small investment. And we weren't over time able to accrete that stake to make it a more meaningful investment. So again, when we were approached by someone who was interested in acquiring that minority stake, we took the decision to say, because we couldn't meet our original investment thesis, to create and acquire more stakes in that business, even though it was a very good business and a solid investment case, it just wasn't meaningful enough within the context of that fund to justify keeping it within the portfolio. And we took the decision to, in the best interests of our investors, exit that business.
0: That's a theme that we've explored in some of these other episodes. Igneo indeed prefers to have a majority stake ownership and hence that situation you've described over the long term was suboptimal for how you would like to create value.
1: Exactly right. It doesn't have to be a majority stake, but it has to be at least a joint controlling stake. I think for us to have a minority stake where we don't have the governance protection to be able to have that proactive asset management to really drive the performance of these businesses is very, very challenging. And so for us, 100% ownership is great, but at least it has to be co-controlling stakes.
0: These portfolio companies have attracted very substantial premiums upon their exit. Can you describe why you believe they have been that successful in terms of attracting those premiums? How you believe you created the basis for that success upon exit during the time that you were responsible for the ownership of those assets?
1: It really comes down to four key things. In my view, I think the first is it's about selecting your investments incredibly carefully. It's about choosing the right business. We have analyzed in excess of 2,000 businesses during my time at Ignio in Europe. It is about being incredibly selective about those opportunities that really fit the investment strategy, where you can really make a difference in terms of buying well and then managing well. And those are the two next steps, really. So be incredibly selective about the investment opportunities you pursue. And then once you start pursuing them, it's about making sure you buy them well, making sure you position yourself incredibly well.
0: What does that mean, Marcus, buying well?
1: Buying well, it can mean lots of things. It can mean unlocking those bilateral off-market opportunities. And we certainly have examples in the portfolio where we've done that. So Fern Gas, which is one of the businesses we exited in Germany, our German high-pressure gas distribution and transmission network is a business that we were able to enter into bilateral transactions, two separate bilateral transactions to combine to create Fern Gas. So having those off-market bilateral conversations is always great. But equally, it can be about participating in auctions, but only where you've positioned yourself incredibly well. So to give you an example, I've spoken about Karuna being one of those businesses that we exited in a bilateral process. We didn't actually enter it in a bilateral process. We entered it in an auction process, but we acquired that business from Fortum, the Finnish energy major. That was a business where we'd spend a long time with Fortum in the run-up to any auction process, long before they'd ever thought about selling it. We spent a lot of time in Finland with the key decision makers within Fortum trying to unlock that opportunity, ideally trying to unlock a bilateral opportunity. That wasn't forthcoming. This was a crown jewel in the Fortum portfolio. But when they did come to sell it, we knew they were thinking about selling it long before they appointed a sell-side advisor really, really early in the process. And what did that knowledge give us? Well, that knowledge gave us the time to position and prepare. So it enabled us to do a couple of things. It enabled us to form a consortium to acquire that business, form a consortium that included two local Finnish pension plans. So having that good local knowledge. Now, Forsham is almost 50% state-owned. So being seen as being friendly to Finland, being seen as being a welcome investor, really, really important. The second thing we did a little bit cheeky, but very well positioning is we hired all of the regulatory advisors in Finland. Now, Finland, a relatively small country, you know, population of about 5 million people. There were only five regulatory advisors in Finland that really understood electricity distribution in Finland. We hired them all. What it meant that anyone else trying to participate in the auction, who were then looking to someone to help them understand Finnish regulation, couldn't hire a Finnish regulatory advisor. They had to hire a Swedish or a German regulatory advisor who didn't understand Finnish regulation as well as a local would do. And therefore, it put them at a disadvantage.
0: So very much positioning yourself in advance for something that if you've looked at 2,000 businesses, you have a pretty good idea about those that you would like to own at some point and being very ready
1: Absolutely. And so doing that positioning work, making sure that you have made yourself, given yourself all the advantages you possibly can, that you are seen as the most likely buyer, that you have done the preparation work. Another thing we did with we hired a commercial advisor called LTEL. Now LTEL used to be part of Fortum. It used to be the engineering department of the electricity distribution division of Fortum. It is the company that was spun out of Fordham, but still to this day provides a lot of the network planning, a lot of the engineering, a lot of the procurement for Karuna and then for Fordham. And so that knowledge that they had, they knew the network at least as well as the management team of the seller knew the network. So we had regulation and network planning on our side knowledge that no one else had. It enabled us to put together a business plan long before any auction process started, positioned with our local partners to be the buyer of choice of the vendor. It meant that all these ingredients came together. Yes, we had to participate in the auction, but we knew where the value was. And it meant that when we bought Karuna, we were able to implement very, very quickly strategic change within that business to really improve the way that business operated. And you see that then in the exit that we've been able to create significant value for our investors by buying that business very well, then managing it incredibly well, and then exiting it well. So it's do the research to find the right investment, position yourself on the execution on the way in, manage it very well, and then manage the exit incredibly well. Simple, really. It's just an awful lot of work.
0: <laughs> it would be really good while we're on Karuna, while we're on Finland. Could you talk us through a little bit, I guess, that second part of what you're describing there, which is under the ownership, some of the things that you did to create value within that business?
1: For Karuna, it was really about a business that had been almost unloved within the Fortune Group they understood a regulated network business to be a business that at the end of every year, you use the regulatory formula, the regulatory formula told you what the price to the consumer was, and that was it. For Fortum, one of the things that they had was very competing priorities. And so this network business, this core electric distribution network was kind of a bit of an afterthought, and it fought hard to be relevant within the Fortum group, whereas Under our ownership, it was a standalone business and it was always thinking about how could it position itself better? How could it be the best possible electricity distribution network? For us, it was about thinking about long-term planning, thinking about how do we create this business to position itself to be the best it possibly can be. In Fortum days, it had annual cycles, budget cycles, where it was only told how much it could spend. Effectively, a month or two before the year started. And then it had to go out and find and procure it. And these are big capex programs. And then it had to deliver it. And that's not really enough lead time. So, what we instantly did, literally within months of taking ownership of the business, is say, scrap annual cycles for capex. We want to plan capex in five year cycles. So, we want to sit there and we want to go out to the market and say, instead of saying, I want this next month, this is what I want over the next five years price it up for me, how are you going to deliver it? How are you going to organize yourself? And for the contractor market, for the people who actually deliver this CapEx, that was an absolute game changer. So rather than having to be incredibly reactive and not knowing how many staff they need from year to year, not knowing how to procure the equipment that they need, suddenly it gave them the visibility around how they could plan their organizations to deliver what we wanted. And that saving was huge. I mean, really quite significant. So ultimately, we were able to procure CapEx on a much, much cheaper, more efficient basis than had been done under the old Fortum annual cycles. So just changing that mindset to think longer term, to procure longer term, to set up an organization that was thinking in a totally different way, really, really dramatically changed how that business performed and really created significant growth. The next thing was there was quite a significant change in Finland. Finland had suffered some quite significant storms a year or so before our ownership, and it was over the Christmas period, and there were parts of downtown Helsinki that were without power for up to a week. In our capital city, in a AAA-rated economy, in a Eurozone country, really, really... Got to their psyche. So they very much looked to the regulator to say, you need to, through regulation, encourage weatherproofing, encourage investment in the network. And so, coupled with our change in the way we planned for investment, together with a drive from the population, from the politicians, from the regulators to say, we want more investment, we want weatherproofing, we want better networks. It was taking those things together so where we really were able to create additional value. So it was about really setting up an organization and and creating transformation within that organization and how it was set up, how it was set to think to make sure that we were creating the environment where value could be created.
0: I think probably a number of the people listening would be surprised to hear that that came with a substantial investment program as opposed to, I guess, the classic assumption, well, you buy something so you cut costs. Being
1: efficient is really important. With all the infrastructure, there's a social contract. There's a license to operate, if you like, a social license to operate. And it is about being as efficient as possible. In the end, you have to be, you have to demonstrate that you are doing everything you can to run these businesses as efficiently as possible. So there is an element of cost control that that absolutely is in there. But what we like to talk about is creating sustainable enterprises. And that's much broader than I think that narrow responsible investment or ESG definition of sustainability. This isn't just about decarbonization, climate change, et cetera. Although that is a part of it, it's about creating businesses that have a long-term future. And normally that involves investment. That involves investing in making sure those businesses are going to be here, not just for five or 10 years, but for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 plus years, creating sustainability within those businesses, creating sustainable enterprises. And so we love businesses where you can demonstrate that you can create value through investment. Um, just about every single one of our businesses, whether we've exited them or whether we still hold them, has a story around how we are investing in that long-term future of the business.
0: Just going to change pace a little bit. So, interesting times, may we live in them. Since 2019, we've seen significant dislocation, both in politically, economically, globally, And of course, I'm including here the COVID pandemic, wars in Ukraine, resulting in an energy price crisis that's been felt in many major markets, and then a backdrop of rising inflation and increasing interest rates. And this is your backdrop. Now, all of these things, obviously, as an owner and an operator of infrastructure businesses must have a significant impact needing to sell because, as you've described, your investors have asked you to do so without compromising on the value that you've created over time.
1: There has been a huge amount. For us, it's about making sure these businesses are ready to be divested. Talking about some of the issues that we face, some of them have actually been incredibly positive for assets. Some of them have been very negative for assets. Different assets act in different ways, and it's one of the benefits of having a portfolio of infrastructure investment. So I suppose if you look at some of the COVID-impacted assets, are typically our more GDP-correlated transport assets were the ones that really suffered. So I'll give you an example, 4C uh, Ferries. 4C Ferries is a high-frequency ferry business between Sweden and Denmark, Helsing or Helsingborg. So it's a 20-minute crossing, four crossings an hour, very, very high frequency. It's effectively part of the European motorways network. As you can imagine, when people are told that they have to stay at home, when borders close between Sweden and Denmark, that makes that business incredibly challenging. So we had much, much, much reduced traffic. Now there was still some traffic because essential workers had to use the crossing. And we still had quite a lot of freight traffic because freight still had to travel. And roughly 50% of the traffic comes from freight traffic, roughly 50% from cars. But, you know, really quite material reduction during those lockdown years. So what did we do? We very quickly got into the business, took out as much variable costs as we could, made sure that we were running as leanly as possible, make sure that the service matched the level of traffic. So we didn't necessarily run all of our sailings, we cut back the sailings to the bare minimum so that we were able to operate a service that delivered what our customers needed, but also able to manage our cost base as much as possible. We worked very, very carefully with our lenders to make sure that we weren't tripping up any of the covenants. Ultimately, you asked about divestments. Now we have divested four sea ferries, but what it meant was rather than trying to divest in the middle of the pandemic, we waited until we had clear air after the pandemic, were able to demonstrate the recovery post-pandemic of that business and show a nice return to a good stable infrastructure business. And that enabled us to successfully divest that business last year. You talk about what do we do during our ownership. Enforcy is a great example. That was a business that we acquired. It was an unincorporated joint venture. It was owned by two different people. It had very confused branding. It didn't have a vessel strategy. It didn't have the right management team and the right organization. All of these things we addressed. So constant branding, creating one business, creating the right corporate structure, really thinking about how we engage with the customers and consumers, thinking about decarbonization and the long-term future of that business, we converted two of the vessels to run fully electrified. And I believe they certainly were at the time, they may still be the two largest electric vehicles in the world, really quite significantly sized business. And you know what was interesting about that is it was converting an existing diesel-electric propulsion system. So effectively, you take the diesel out and replace that with batteries. So it's still electric propulsion. That wasn't terribly complicated. The complicated bit is the charging, because effectively, you've got to recharge this high-frequency vessel that is only in port for less than 10 minutes. And how do you recharge it? And so it was really clever robotic arms that had to attach very, very high-powered cables to the vessel to enable it to recharge, in port for very short stays. So a lot of clever innovation and in technology, as well as a lot of corporate restructuring, taking that business to be a really good standalone business within its respective field.
0: The only ferry business that's perhaps going to be bigger is another one of our portfolio companies, Scanlines. So they're investing in an electric vehicle that's a, a much longer route Correct. than the, the four seafarers one. So that knowledge is obviously transferred over yes. in the team.
1: I think some of the learnings from 4C have absolutely transferred across to Scanlines, which is, as you say, a, still a high-frequency ferry service between Denmark and Germany, but with much longer sailing times of 45 minutes to an hour and a half, and so bigger challenges in terms of electrifying the fleet.
0: It's one of the tricky things that probably everybody listening has had to experience to deal with in Personal lives, business lives, which is that rising inflation environment. How does that impact you when you're preparing a business for sale, given that the price of everything has increased? How does all that sit within that backdrop of this business is for sale and it's going to cost somebody more to run it, perhaps, than it had done under your own ownership?
1: One of the things that's really proved out over the last couple of years is the inflation protection offered by infrastructure as an asset class. And and certainly within our portfolio, we've seen that. So most of our businesses have either an explicit inflation pass-through or an implicit inflation pass-through. So the regulated networks businesses, typically that is written into the regulatory contract that you pass through inflation. In the contracted businesses, again, typically there is a form of inflation pass-through in the contractual protection. And then in the more GDP correlated businesses, you typically have the ability to pass through inflation through setting your prices. Being able to demonstrate the inflationary protection that comes through these infrastructure businesses makes them more attractive to people looking to buy into them. Because you are getting the benefit of the inflationary pass through, you actually can support some of those higher interest rate costs.
0: It is sensible to just spend a couple of minutes, if you could, talking us through philosophically how you think about debt within infrastructure businesses and within infrastructure investment.
1: Sustainable enterprises that we've talked about before, part of that is making sure that they have appropriate capital structures. Now, appropriate capital structures means a lot of things. It means we've talked about creating value through investment, through CapEx. So making sure that you've got the ability to fund that CapEx, making sure that you've got facilities that help support that CapEx program so that you're not just funding CapEx through equity, you're funding it through equity and debt. That's really important. So how you are setting up the capital structure to make sure you can accommodate that growth, really, really important. The second thing about the sustainable enterprise and sustainable capital structures is about quantum is about leverage, is about running that analysis, stress testing it, making sure that you are not over-levering these businesses so that when you do get interest rate rises, that you are able to sustain them. And we always take very conservative long-term views around our capital structures, around our cost of debt. Leverage is absolutely a necessary part of infrastructure investing. These are big businesses with big capital requirements we do need to make sure they are appropriately leveraged.
0: So I feel like we've talked about quite a few very large things here in terms of value creation, in terms of things that you can do to create value when you own a large, as you say, complex infrastructure business. So I think you've described some strategic changes. So Karuna, a very big investment program. You've talked about 4C, so operational improvements, you know, Transitioning across to battery powered. You talked about, I guess, almost building a business. So the Ferngus example, bringing together something that wasn't really a business. It was a couple of networks.
1: And we love doing that. We've got lots of examples in the portfolio of either bringing businesses together to create something that's bigger than the separate entities and more complete or creating platforms. And we've got some great examples, probably Finerge is our most prolific Platform business. Fenerge is our Iberian renewables business. So we originally acquired NL Green Power's Portuguese subsidiary, which was about 600 megawatts of operating wind exclusively in Portugal. So it was the number three wind player in Portugal. And again, it was a very small business. It was used to just operating that 600 megawatts, and that's all it did. And over the years, I think we're up to our 15th bolt-on acquisition at Feneres. So that business today, having been 600 megawatts exclusively in wind, exclusively in Portugal, is now an Iberian champion. So it's two gigawatts of operating wind and solar in both Portugal and Spain. It's the number one renewables business in Portugal, and I believe it's the number three in Spain, but you know, really quite significant. And I'll go on to say this, it's a significant IPP, independent power producer, now it's really making quite significant contribution to the Iberian Peninsula's power needs, and the business is absolutely transformed. It's got its own in-house M A capabilities. It's got its own development capabilities. It's a genuine enterprise, as opposed to a small management team running an asset portfolio. That's been a really strong journey for us in terms of creating value through those bolt-on acquisitions, creating something that will be sustainable for the long term.
0: We've talked very high level about the philosophy of buying, owning, managing, selling a business. When it comes to that exit process, how does that work? How do you go through an exit? How do you talk to counterparties? How do you identify potential buyers? What does this mysterious Exit process actually look like in reality?
1: It's a really good question, Sarah. I think the important bit is it's not one size fits all. There isn't a standard playbook for exiting a business. It's really important to think very carefully, to take the time to plan for an exit. There's multiple routes you can take. You can run a full auction process where you hire investment banks and consultants who prepare all sorts of diligence and data rooms and glossy presentations and information memorandums. And you invite the world to come in and you sign hundreds of confidentiality agreements, send information memoranda all around the world and whittle that down through an auction process where you end up with two or three very Keen bidders at the end outbidding each other. And sometimes that is absolutely the most appropriate way. And, you know, I'd say, for example, Correons, which is a business that we sold last year, it was a very attractive business in a market where there's very few investments. So it's a French district heating business. It's very much right at the forefront of energy transition, decarbonization. Really, really attractive business that we'd more than double the size of that business under our ownership. Incredibly well-run business. It was a very visible business within the French and the European infrastructure market. So it felt like the way to maximize value for our investors was to run a full auction process, hiring investment banks and consultants to act for us, to market it as widely as possible, and ultimately whittle it down to sell that business. So that was the right approach for that business. And that was 100% sale of that business. And then you can look at things like Finerge. Finerge is a business that are our Iberian renewables platform. That is a business where we had one of our funds, and it's owned by multiple funds, uh, decided it had to exit. So there was a minority sale available, but the other investors in that business want to stay. And so we then ran an auction process again but an auction process just for a minority stake. And again, we're able to attract interest into that, and we ultimately ended up selling a 25% stake in that business. And you might have other assets where, because of a complicated shareholding structure, you run a, a bilateral process. And so, for example, our exit of Anglian Water, we actually did two bilateral trades in relation to that because we felt that because of that shareholding structure, that it was challenging to run a wide auction process and we were able to run an off-market bilateral process successfully uh, where two strategic institutional investors picked up two separate stakes in Anglian Water. So again, it just depends, but it's about the planning, the preparation, really thinking about what's the best possible way to get the best outcome for our investors. We haven't yet IPO'd a business, but that's always one of those things that you always have to consider. But it's about, do you do 100% sale? Do you do a partial sale? Do you do a bilateral? Do you run a wide auction process? Limited au- so there's lots of tools. In the end, it's about the right exit for the right business at the right time. When it comes to exit them, make sure you exit them well. And that means really thinking about it, really taking the time to position those businesses for the best possible exit, to make sure they are going to be sustainable enterprises for the next owners. You are just a short-term custodian in that journey and that you really want to leave these enterprises in a better state than you found them. And I think the thing I'm most proud of is that every single one of those enterprises, I think we can say that.
0: We've covered a lot of ground. We've covered quite a few businesses. I think that's a pretty good wrap up, Marcus. So thank you for spending the time and I will bring this episode to a close. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Real Assets, the IGNIO Infrastructure Partners podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to more by following IGNIO Infrastructure Partners on your favorite podcast platform. If you'd like to find out more about IGNIO Infrastructure Partners, you can visit our website at IGNIOIP.com. This podcast series was produced by Mark Gardner at OX4 Sound Studio. This podcast is not a financial promotion and has been prepared for general information purposes only. It is not intended to be investment or financial advice and does not take into account the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of any particular person. References to specific securities should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell such securities. Investment vehicles managed by IGNIO Infrastructure Partners are only available to institutional investors professional investors, qualified investors, and wholesale clients. They are not available to retail clients, the general public, private customers, or any persons in any jurisdiction in which their distribution is not authorised. IGNIO Infrastructure Partners is an unlisted infrastructure asset management business and is part of the First Sentier Investors Group. We communicate and conduct business through different legal entities in different locations. Please refer to the notes section of the podcast platform you use for more information on IGNIO infrastructure partners in your region. For Singapore only, the podcast should be used in accordance with the applicable laws in Singapore. In Singapore, the podcast is issued by First Sentier Investors Singapore, whose company registration number is 196900420D. This advertisement or material has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. First Sentier Investors' registration number 53236800B and Ignio Infrastructure Partners' registration number 53447928J are business divisions of First Sentier Investors Singapore.